Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Hey all, Chris Jonu, welcome back to the Startup Grind Global Podcast. And today we're doing things slightly differently. Uh, we have Alex Gordon first, our you know, VP of Sales and Startups, doing a bit of a takeover. He's doing the Founder Series. And what's different about this is we're talking more, more talking more about you know tactical tactical lessons from the young and upcoming founders, uh, predominantly from our startup program. In this case, Flatfile. Uh, he interviews Eric Crane, the co-founder and CEO of Flatfile. His mission it is is to remove barriers between humans and their data, and they're talking specifically on the subject of designing a fundraise. Um, and this is where it's different from the you know the multi-billion dollar startups because it's fresh, fresh in the mind the latest strategies, and they talk about um, how um, Eric and his co-founder David Boscovic designed a fundraising strategy that enabled them to raise a seven point six million dollar seed in less than a month. So pretty pretty impressive stuff. I'm sure you enjoy it. Let Alex take it away. Welcome everyone to Startup Grind's Founder Series, where we educate our community on highly relevant early stage topics through interviews with founders of our top startups. Today's subject is designing a fundraise, lessons from Flatfile's first two investment rounds. I'm very excited to, to welcome Eric today, and, and the goal of today's episode is to educate other founders in our community on strategies to make their capital raise as efficient as possible, obviously so that they can get back to doing what they love, which is building. Um, so just kicking off with some introductions, uh, my name, before I go to, to Eric, my name is Alex, and I'm the VP of Sales and Startups here at Startup Grind. Uh, Flatfile is another one of our most exciting startups in our, in our program, so, so let's kick off. Um, Eric, uh, you are the co-founder and COO of Flatfile. Uh, you've spent more than a decade in B2B software at both enterprises and startups, contributing in roles ranging from product and engineering to marketing customer success. Uh, and you're joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you, Alex? I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Um, so so let's, let's dive in. I mean, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Flatfile just to get some context on the, on the episode. Um, do you want to start by maybe just telling us what is Flatfile and, and what is the problem that you guys are solving? Yeah, for sure. So what we solve is what we call data onboarding. So if you've ever had to onboard a new customer, um, not only do you have to train the customer on how to use your software the best, but you also have to train their data on how best to fit in to your software system. And so this is typically a challenge that's tough to solve because your customer has all the right data, but it might not be labeled the right way. It might not be formatted the right way. And so most businesses, especially in the software space, when you need to collect data as a very early touch point with a customer is a crucial opportunity to show value of your solution. And Flatfile is a bridge between what your customer is coming in with and what you view as the ideal usable structure of data within your platform or application. 
Amazing. I love that. And, and, and did that sort of, did it come from personal experience through those 10 years? Is that something that, that you and David, your co-founder had experienced and built off of? Yeah, I think we just got tired of having to solve this problem over and over again at every single business we were at. And I think the last straw was when we were working together at Envoy. Yeah, we were building workplace management solutions. Um, we were not, we had no designs to start a data company, but we were frustrated that there wasn't a drop-in data importer that we could use in the application to solve some of the challenges we were running into when it came to onboarding these new customers' data. Yeah, I mean, that's the ideal story, right? You know, you, you're, you're solving, you are your own customer. So, you know, you know exactly where to, where to start. So, uh, love that. And so, this is obviously a common question, but why, why do you feel like now is the best time for Flatfile to be solving that problem? Yeah, so uh, we'll touch on this a little bit later as well. But um, one of the most kind of surprising points that was made um, during our initial fundraising round was something that we weren't even quite aware of was the fact that 87% um, of enterprise data, it lives outside of a database or is not connected to an API. So if you think about the world that we typically live in as startups, you think, oh, well, we've got all these API-based connectors and real-time event tracking, but most enterprises don't live in that world. They have one-off access databases, Excel spreadsheets passed everywhere, fixed width mainframes that they might be dealing with. And because there is this just explosion of the verticalization of legacy SaaS segments, so whether it be in service operations, you see companies like Service Titan, um, or you know, even one that got started a little bit earlier in the CRM space, you certainly see much more specialization in what software can do and what these SaaS businesses can do. But one of the biggest challenges for them going to market is actually getting access to all of that data that lives in all of these legacy systems or processes. And so that sort of combined with the fact that today it's as easy as it ever was just to bake in machine learning, not as your solution, but as a part of a broader solution to a challenge that a human needs to solve meant that it was the right time to start Flatfile. Okay. Okay. Love that. And, and uh, in terms of the, you were founded in 20, early 2018, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So getting into the sort of um, the, the fundraising kind of category of questions, I'd love to know, I think between your founding or your foundation and your first sort of pre-seed raise, was around a year or just over a year. So could you sort of dive in before we go into how you funded it using you know, venture capital uh, and so on, what, how did you sort of fund those early days? Uh, what, what sort of techniques or tools did you use? Yeah, so the, the most expensive, um, and I hate using this term to refer to humans, but uh, the most expensive resource, I guess, for any startup is the time of intelligent, you know, well-versed um, well and capable people. And for us, that meant, okay, if we're starting this business, yeah, I mean, you can spin something up on Amazon pretty cheap or Heroku. That wasn't really the issue. The issue was how do we get folks to contribute to this to help us define a solution within this problem space? And I got to give all the credit to my co-founder, David, for coming up with this. But basically what he did was he said, well, let's look at a safe note. Like, what is a safe note actually, right? It is just... Um, dollars for some future equity stake in the business or dollars back at some sort of discounted rate, right? And so instead of giving out safe notes to investors, 
we said, we, we said, Hey, can you invest your time in helping us define our business? And we'll give you a safe note in the business. So actually most of our earliest contributors to flat file, myself included, were actually working on safe notes, um, in order to, you know, basically fund the business with those people's time and efforts. And then from there, prove out whether or not there was a market opportunity that we should pursue as a full-time funded startup. That's super interesting. So did you, like, did you guys come up with that idea or did David come up with that idea himself or was that based on discussions with, you know, colleagues or, or people from his network? Yeah. So we were, uh, we were basically talking about how best to do this. And I think David was the one who just came up with the idea because one of his approaches that he likes to use is uh, a base principles approach, right? So like, let's get to the core of the problem, right? Like, okay, we don't have money. So if we don't have money, we need to go get investment dollars, but do you need to get investment dollars? Because what are those investment dollars buy you? And usually at the very earliest stage of a business, it's buying you the time of experts who can come in and help move that business forward, whether it's yourself or whether it's others. And so basically you said, Hey, if that's what we need, then let's just take this vehicle, which is normally used to get that capital and just go right to the source, which is the time of those people who could help contribute to our business. That's really cool. So, and, and what were the sort of the legal intricacies of putting that together where it's saying, you know, you're trading your time for uh, this, this note or this, this safe, like how, how did, how did the, the, the piecing together of that work? Oh man. Well, I thought this was supposed to be a 20, 30 minute long podcast. Here. <laughs> no, it's yeah, um, a, short, a short one. <laughs> I, I will say the lawyers weren't particularly happy with it, but they also couldn't really call out anything that was expressly wrong with with it. I think if we go back, we'd probably tweak a few little things in those documents um, to make them slightly non-standard safe notes because um, it did give us some problems right when we were trying to close with like timing considerations. But other than that, it actually worked out fairly well. That's super interesting. And I, I, maybe we'll have to do a, a whole separate podcast just focusing on, on that, particular, uh, that particular thing. And I'm sure we'll get some, some interesting questions about it afterwards. So, so moving into your, your, your pre-seed raise, I think it was pretty big, right? It was a 2.1 million just a year after founding. Uh, what were the, the main reasons for raising so much so early? Yeah, so uh, we are both product people. And so we took a very product-oriented approach to this. And so the start of the business was really like, okay, is there a sustainable business behind this? Or is this just a lifestyle business that we run as a side project, right? So that was the first question to answer. And by the beginning of 2019, we thought we'd answered that. And that kind of leads into part of the reason why we knew this was a venture backable business was that we had at that point, like 20, 25 paying customers. Um, but ac across those customers, they were in about 12 different segments and use cases. And for us, that was an indication that this is a very, very broad market opportunity. And Further on top of that, we, we ran these uh, various test launches and campaigns, all of which again relied mostly on human effort and not necessarily dollars. But what it led us to were conversations with Fortune 500 companies. And we're thinking, okay, we've got this lifestyle business. This lifestyle business or you know, feature or something that looks like you know, just like a, a little side project. And we're already having conversations with the type of businesses that you would dream of at series C. And so we said, okay, there's gotta be a reason why there's this much interest. 
in what we're solving. And so we took it upon ourselves to do a lot of deep research. Um, that's where that 87% figure comes from is just uh, understanding that like there is a much larger market opportunity here than just a simple feature that goes into a SaaS application. And armed with that knowledge, we said, okay, we should probably raise money to capitalize this business a little bit because we want to maximize the market potential here rather than maximize our path to profitability, which might sound a little bit odd, especially since I'm in Atlanta, which is sort of the, the hub for bootstrapped, you know, profitable early startups. But we knew that by being profitable early meant focusing on a very specific type of use case and would also cut out the maximum market potential for our business later on in the future. That's really, really interesting. And uh, what I was going to ask was, how did you come up with the figure of 2.1 uh, when you were so early in your business? What, what sort of uh, mechanism did you use? Yeah, so there, there are a couple of things. I mean, the first was uh, signaling mechanisms. Like our, our goal was to raise somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million. And so we knew that, you know, that would be a nice signaling effect. Um, the other was that we already had all these contributors on the team and we wanted to bring on most of them full time. And so we said, okay, if we want to bring on these contributors to the team and fill out a couple other gaps that we know we'll need to fill in the next year, what would that look like? And so that's why we ended up raising what we did. And we talk about this a lot internally, but um, one thing we try to be is constantly aligned on 100% buy-in, which means that we're not afraid of selling part of the company to someone else. Like we, we know that if we continue to operate the business the way that we have and continue to realize more and more of this massive market opportunity that's in front of us, it doesn't matter if you own 7% or 8% of an IPO startup, you're going to be fine, right? From a financial perspective. And so we said, okay, we're not going to get nitpicky about exact percentages, but we are going to want to make sure that we control the vision and the future of the business. And so we said, we're willing to trade more dollars for things like board control and provisions that would typically come in an investment round that could hamper our ability to really, you know, go after the whole market opportunity um, as opposed to get pressure from investors to start turning a profit on a quarterly basis or operating basis too early. Great. And let's, let's sort of dig into the, the, the actual fundraising process um, now. So starting from, you know, knowing that you needed to raise to actually closing the, that pre-seed round. What was the, the, the timeline of that? Yeah, so it took about three months through that entire process. Just like, okay, hey, we know we need to go raise money to money's in the bank. Let's, you know, go give our, all of our contributors full-time offers and get, to the, get off to the races here. Um, but the, the process in particular really kicked off with us realizing, hey, okay, we need to go get money for the business. And then there were a couple of different routes we could have gone. We could have said, hey, we'll go to like a Y Combinator or 500 startups and go through that as sort of a program. Or we can go to angels and just, you know, pull in, um, uh, this is a derogatory term, but one that people understand, which is dumb money, right? Like you could, we could just pull in cash to the business um, or we could go the institutional route. And we chose the institutional route because we knew we needed to learn a lot more about different parts of the market that existed for us. And we knew that bringing in not just one, but multiple institutional investors would help us get access to different geographies, different types of businesses or customers that could potentially use us. And then also give us different 
different perspectives on our path to market here. Um, just because I, I wouldn't say there's any right answer, but there's plenty of wrong answers about how to address a, a broad market as opposed to a narrow market. What good is a chat bot if humans can't talk to it? A startup is using AI to get sensible conversations going. Hi, it's Mike Stiles, and this is Meet the Startups for the week of November 4th, brought to you by Oracle for Startups. It takes a lot to build a high-functioning artificial intelligence system. It takes even more to make it communicate with humans. Indian-based startup Light Information Systems rolled out NLP bots to help financial and enterprise customers with a unique, flexible, and yes, conversational AI. It takes more than 40 proprietary algorithms to take NLP bots well beyond what traditional chat bots can do. The system takes in free-flowing conversations and understands unstructured text at human levels. The result is a powerful solution for cross-functional stakeholders and a better experience for customers. Hosting NLP bots on Oracle Cloud aligns and integrates it with Oracle's financial and human capital management products. And, of course, having Oracle Cred opened doors to new customers for light information systems, including South Indian Bank. Meet the Startups asked Light Information Systems' Animesh Samuel what value Oracle adds for startups like his. NLP bots are multifunctional cognitive agents. That means the AI performs multiple functions across various verticals. Um, hence, our technology partnership with the likes of Oracle opens doors in the financial domain where access for startups are very difficult, if not uh, downright impossible. We, of course, need to be patient and collaborate, but the payoff is definitely worth it. What kind of doors do you think Oracle's technology and relationships could open for your startup? Check out Oracle's startup program at oracle.com slash startup. And, and uh, I believe you, you told me a sort of small anecdote beforehand, which is that Gaurav from a four capital actually went to school with your wife. So either that's serendipity or it's uh, good networking. I'm not sure. Uh, but is that, is that the best place to start? Yeah, so it was interesting. Um, Gaurav wasn't the first person I messaged, actually. So we, we had a very intentional process here, which was that neither of us had gone through the process of raising venture capital before, right? So we didn't know what it was like to put together a pitch deck. We had an experience getting in a room in front of partners and sharing information about our business with them and what they would care about or how to answer questions. And so we actually did a lot of planning in this. And again, this is the product in us coming out, which is like, okay, what is our minimum viable product? And it was like the most basic pitch deck. It was value propositions. And then it was like, okay, who are our beta customers going to be? And so it was going to be friendly investors that we knew probably weren't the best fit for us, but as a result would give us great feedback. You know, when you're talking to an investor and they're kind of on the fence, they're not sure about you, they're not going to give you the best possible feedback. But if they know that it's not they're not a good fit for you. They'll tell you everything that, uh, everything that they want. So, I mean, we were going to traditional like series A and series B type firms where we had personal connections asking if we could pitch them. And they said, Hey, you know what? This is not our sweet spot for business right now, but let me give you some feedback on this. So that helped us rapidly iterate on our pitch, our messaging and our positioning. Um, so that when we got to the point where we said, okay, we feel like we've got this really well down, 
let's go ahead and turn that into a formal fundraise. So that first part of the process actually took about six weeks of just meeting with investors, iterating. Um, and in the meantime, in the background, what we were doing was we were doing a few little things that were going to increase the velocity of the round when we said, okay, we found our you know, set of institutionals, we're really gonna go after them. I, I love that, the productization of the, of the, of the pre-seed fundraise, that's great. And, and so how many, how many iterations do you feel like you, you went through during that six week period? Oh man, probably 40 iterations at least over those six weeks, um, sometimes multiple times in a day. And what really helped was that David and I spent a lot of time just practicing with each other over and over again. Um, we would practice, for example, questions. So, hey, if this type of question comes up, Eric's going to answer it. If this type of question comes up, David's going to answer it. And what that helped do was give the impression when we were actually pitching that we were just on the same page, right? It's like, okay, hey, these folks know exactly what they're doing. They're not having to prompt each other. They just know exactly who owns what in the business. And that gives me a lot of confidence in this founding team that they're capable of taking this from this early, you know, pre-seed investment to a sustainable, durable business in the long run. That's an interesting one, actually. Do you, do you think that, obviously, you know, you'd hope that in person that kind of, um, collaboration came off as organic but do you think it you know it, it is it ever organic does it have to be really in this kind of in, in um, sort of instance does it have to be almost manufactured and practiced on that on that level to, for it to work really well well you know people say like Steph Curry is the best natural shooter in the world right how much has he practiced how many times has he sh shot a three-pointer in practice um, over and over and over again how many times has he practiced with his teammates on different plays to make it look and feel natural? So I would say that it probably didn't come across manufactured because we practiced so much um, in preparation for the actual sort of main event, which was getting into that conversation and having it. And the other thing too, is just that I think a lot of times uh, startup founders get overly focused on their pitch deck, um, make the pitch deck good, but you know, don't overthink your deck. Right. People are going to look at you. They're going to look at you in the face. And I will say that, yes, we were able to farm out pitch decks and like design it fairly well. You know, David's got a little bit of a design background, so he's able to make it look fairly nice with some, you know, iconography, colors, fonts. Um, but ultimately, the best conversations we had were with people who were looking us in the face instead of staring up at a screen. Yeah, that's, that's uh, definitely understandable. And so when it comes to actually choosing your, the investors, you said you, you, you eventually got to a, a sort of short list of institutionals that you really wanted to go after. How did you, um, how did you approach that, that process, this sort of secondary process, and how did you end up choosing the investors that you, you ended up going with? Yeah, so for the, the second part of the process, that was when, okay, we knew what our pitch was. We, we had practiced it really well. We'd gotten a lot of great feedback from folks who we're still, you know, close with and engaged with even today, uh, which is part of the benefit of kind of going, you know, punching above weight class early on gets you access to certain folks who will still be following along and interested in your business. And so we said, okay, we've got everything that we need here. Now let's go ahead and actually run this fundraising process. And so a couple things that we did that were pretty crucial early on. First, I, I can't overstate the, the value of the forward email. Um, so being able to write an email that's succinct, that describes your business, and also why you think an investor might be interested.
interested in speaking with you. You're giving them a lot of good information about where you are. And you're also telling them like, hey, you might be interested in this because I'm actually paying attention to what you're saying and thinking. And so that's what, how we got and introduced to quite a few of the folks that we ended up getting into you know, serious discussions with about funding the business. Um, the other thing that we did, so that was kind of external facing was like the, the forward email and making sure that like our initial approach to these investors took an approach that was very personal and meant that we knew what they were thinking about. But the internal approach was we had uh, almost a scientific type of formula that we were using based on what we were looking for in those investors. So as I mentioned earlier, we wanted to find folks who got us access to different types of markets, different types of geographies and also you know, different types and scales of businesses. And so we had this, this weighted average formula that was based on things like the geography. Are these in different geographies from us? Um, are these investors, you know, do they have like an established brand that could help connect us to some larger businesses early on? And then also uh, our, our feeling for how engaged they were with us as a business even early on. Um, especially when you're at the very early stage, there might be this temptation to say, oh, well, I'm going to go after all of the, you know, brand name VCs of the world. Um, looking back at it, the ones who have done the most for us are the ones who got down in the trenches with us and said, hey, we're going to figure out this business with you. We're going to meet with you regularly we're, and we're going to be proactive. And so that was actually a little checkbox that we had was like, has this investor been proactive with us through this process? I.e., they didn't wait for us to reach out. They instead reached out separately with their thoughts or ideas about where the business could go. That was a really strong early indicator for us. Yeah, that's interesting. It's aligned with, um, so our, our founder, um, Derek, who, who's got a, another company, Bevy, just raised a Series B. He said that um, a, a good approach for him was, was targeting um, investors who, who had something to prove in their career because they're more likely to actually follow through on their investment with actual you know, strategic support and a lot of help because they really want to make a name for themselves. So I like that you sort of used a, a similar uh, metric when you were thinking about who to, who to go with. Yeah, and I, I'll plug Gorov here as well, right? I mean, we weren't certain about Gorov, you know, a four a couple of years ago was, you know, just getting into their, I think, second fund and they weren't incredibly well known but what we saw in Gaurav and Anamishra was that they were just hustlers, right? Like they were putting their effort into the business like we were as startup founders. And so we said, okay, not only can they help us with all this insight and connections and capital, but they can also just empathize with what we're going through. And so that did make a big difference at that early stage. And like I said, the, the investors that we've had sort of the best results with have always been the ones who have been thinking about our business, even when sometimes we're not. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to have those kind of partners on board. So um, great that you did. So, and we'll, we'll come on to the seed in a, in a minute, because I think that was, you know, uh, almost an even more interesting story with the, the speed mm -hmm. that it happened at. But just to kind of, uh, you know, bridge the gap between pre-seed and seed, how did you sort of allocate that pre-seed money and what sort of length of runway did you have? Yeah, so the, the biggest thing that we wanted to do with that money was to prove out that there was some sort of product market fit here and prove out the breadth of that market, right? Like we had all this, this industry statistics and we had this you know, leading indication that you know, there was a, a pretty good market here, but we wanted to be able to prove that out. And so what we took that money to do was dedicated towards two specific things. The first was product development. 
all right, let's, let's iterate towards a version of this product that we feel like does address these pains across all these different segments that we are seeing as potential customers. And the second was the go-to-market. Like, are we capable of taking this solution and serving the market with it? And so those were things that led up to um, our, you know, series seed fundraising, which came a few months later. And I will say that, you know, when we raise, like, you know, typically you want to raise and get 18, 24 months of runway. Um, I think once we realized that the, those two things were checked off from the product market fit perspective and from the go to market perspective, um, and that happened pretty early on in this year, um, we said to hell with runways, right? Like we know that we've got a business here that is not only fundable, but is something that could eventually turn a profit even if we weren't able to get fundraising. And so with those two things in mind, um, we were able to pretty easily set ourselves up for a seed fundraise regardless of the runway that did exist in the business. Interesting. And how did that change what you were tracking uh, between pre-seed and seed? And obviously if you're raising a seed round a lot earlier than you had previously thought you would, uh, you know, you're, you're having to recalibrate what you're I guess what, yeah, just how you're, how you're tracking what your KPIs are. So how did that work? Yeah, it all happened so quickly, but um, basically what we were originally looking at was like adoption and average revenue per customer, right? So like adoption was like, okay, are we getting the types of businesses that we think this is useful for to adopt and use our solution? Um, so early on, we had some great like high growth startups come in right after that pre-seed. So folks like Toast and Jobber, um, and then there were some later stage, larger businesses, uh, like a little bit closer to the end of last year, like, uh, Benevity who came in and said, Hey, this is actually something that's really interesting to us as well. That were kind of helping us prove those points on the adoption side. And on the average revenue per customer side, you know, we wanted to say like, Hey, but you know, you can solve a problem all day long, but that problem also has to be worth something to someone and you have to be able to sell it as a business. So are we able to continue to push up um, almost month over month, double digits, average revenue per customer? And if we were able to successfully do that, we said, okay, we know our market size is big and growing. And we know that we're able to capture more and more revenue over time from customers, the better we're able to serve a solution to this problem of data onboarding. So with those two pieces of evidence um, around like middle of January this year, we pulled a couple levers on the revenue side of the business. And that's what basically launched um, almost like a self, uh, like a, a self-driving fundraising round that our seed round. Wow. So the actual uh, preparation for your seed, it, 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 you almost didn't have time to prepare because it came around so fast that, you know, you realized again, this is the time to kind of double down early. Yeah. I mean, I think you sent me over the questions uh, before this conversation, just some examples. And one of them was like, what was it like putting together or structuring your deck for the seed round? Um, we didn't actually. I mean, we put together a deck, but the deck was a diligence deck. So as investors were basically handing us preemptive term sheets, um, they, they still do their diligence, right? And so we were able, we said, okay, it's not efficient for us to get on, you know, two hour long phone call and build out a set of docs for every single one of these folks. So let's just put together a deck um, that has all the information that they need to know um, to validate what they're thinking about the investability of this business. So do you think uh, to, to a, 
or to, to what extent would you say that the amount of effort you put into basically productizing your pre-seed raise led to eventually your seed raise happening like it did? Oh, a hundred, like a hundred percent. And I think that's uh, kind of the key here is that because of the way that we focused on operating the business and proving out those couple points that I mentioned before, paired with the way that we ran our pre-seed process, which got us exposure to a lot of different investors, but didn't necessarily put them on the spot in terms of us asking for a term sheet. Um, what that helped us do was essentially turn our pre-seed or a seed round into an extension of what, all the effort we put into the pre-seed. So it was in short enough time frame that folks still knew about Flatfall and knew we were, you know, a potentially investable business. And then we were able to just lean on those connections that we'd started developing in the first round to say, hey, by the way, it looks like we're going to raise some additional capital here based on the, the um, sort of evidence that we're seeing in the business today. And did you also, do you feel like the initial feedback that you got from those A, B, C investors, uh, you know, reverse engineering that helped you be much clearer on exactly what you needed to do in order to get to the stage where they would be, become relevant? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, we have, um, and this is what David talked about on the Airtable um, podcast that he did, which was we actually built out a CRM, not for our own business, but also for our investors. And so we built that in Airtable and we were tracking information about, okay, what were the things that they said that they cared about? What were the key questions that they had for the business that were unanswered? And so then when we were having some of these follow-up conversations, we were able to speak directly to the things that they were concerned about previously. And that showed not only thoughtfulness, but also just progression of the business, especially in a short amount of time that got um, that investment community fairly excited. I mean, you're doing your you're doing their diligence for them, right? So you're making their their job easier, uh, which which again leads to the ex, ex the expedi expedition of the, the the whole process. Well, at the end of the day, right? The best preparation you can do for a fundraising round is to have a solid business, and so we focused on having a solid business, answering a couple of key questions that we knew would come up based on what we learned in those previous conversations, and then when we had those questions answered we went back to the market, or at least we're going to go back to the market and just got preempted by a couple months. So when we talk about the, the, the raise, uh, I think 7.6 million seed round, which is obviously, a, again, a big, a big um, term, a big round in relative terms to, to other seed rounds. What you said 30 days. So what, what is that 30 days counting? What, what is the kind of day one and what is day 30? Yeah. So uh, again, we weren't officially fundraising for the seed round. It started with a preemptive offer. So from that first preemptive offer that came in to us actually, you know, getting the first institutional check in that seed round was about 30 days. And um, it, you know, you'll appreciate this. We were actually at the Startup Grind conference in February, which is I think the last time I actually was outside of Atlanta for anything, <laughs> anything social or work related. Um, other than a couple trips to New York for the closing out this fundraising round. But basically we, we were just chatting with a variety of different investors, you know, because we were out in the Bay, we were just letting them know what was happening in the business. And, you know, one of them in particular said, Hey, you know, this looks like something I want to invest in. I know you're not raising money right now. You're planning on raising later this year, but I'd like to put it in an offer. We got that offer a couple of days later. And from there, it was just off to the races because we already had all these other relationships with folks. 
And because we weren't prepared, um, I don't necessarily want to say it was an excuse to buy some time, but it was a, a good reason for us to say, hey, we need to think about whether this is the right time to raise and how much we should bring into the business given where we are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so given that it was coming from, you know, it was almost in, I mean, it, it was inbound interest rather than, you know, outbound interest or outbound generation. What did you, again, what mechanisms did you use to decide on that 7.6 million number? Um, and, and how did you calibrate this sort of valuation and everything at that stage as well? Yeah, so a lot of the things we were looking for in our pre-seed were still valid with our seed. And so we had a similar type of approach and process, which is like, what are the different things that we care about from an investor in this round? And number one was still their engagement and conviction on the business. And that's what ultimately led to Sigma to raise the round was just we got um, incredible conviction about Francis there being able to help us move our business forward, not only from the perspective of capital, but also for ideas and how to operate the business and helping us, you know, bring leaders into the business, which is kind of the second part of this so is a little different than the pre-seed was we knew that we were going to have to start bringing in some, some leaders that didn't start with the business originally too. And we wanted to find folks who would help us do that as well. Um, but then a lot of the other factors were the same. Like we still wanted a diversity of geographies and backgrounds for our different investors. And then also wanted the diverse perspective that comes with that. So all of those things put together helped us do, again, like a ranking of different funds, albeit in a much more hurried process the second time around. And then we said, okay, instead of starting at the middle or bottom of this list, just to learn more about what we need, um, we'll start at the top. And so we just started at the top, made sure that we were having conversations with all the folks that we felt were most aligned with where we were going as a business and fit with our stage. And uh, that helped the round come together fairly quickly. And you'd asked about the amount too, which is 7.6 million. Again, we try to avoid being overly specific. Now, if you're trying to trade tenths of a percent pretty early on in your business, that might hamper you a good bit. Yeah, we weren't trying to build the perfect round. We were trying to build the round that could close, help us move our business forward, knowing that we were going to raise more money in the future again anyways. And so I think, you know, the 7.6 comes from us saying, okay, well, we want to raise, you know, at least $5 million. Like we want to at least, you know, get a 2.5 X on the last round. Um, but that also paired with what was happening in the world at the time, which was, you know, we were meeting with some firms, um, I'm not going to name names, but like there's some firms who are like, hey, we're not going to shake your hand when we meet you because of this, this COVID thing that's happening. And that told us, okay, well, we're not really certain what the effect that this is going to have on our business. So we should probably shy on the side of capitalizing a little bit more than we should, just in case there is some sort of lag in the investment market that will exist in the future. And so the timing worked out pretty well for us to raise just a little bit of extra capital early on. Um, fortunately, COVID hasn't had a significant impact on us operating our business. Everyone in the business have been safe and healthy. Um, but I know others who have run into some significant struggles or roadblocks in their business as a result. And so I think it was the right decision at the time to say, hey, we're gonna you know, bump up this amount a little bit more get some of the folks who otherwise uh, wouldn't have fit in the round into the round as a result. And uh, ultimately we've been able to now deploy that capital fairly effectively. We've grown the team by two X in five months. And we've also grown our customer base by about 
five or six X in that, that same period of time. Well, it's a busy year for you. Yeah. What, so, so just on, on the sort of COVID point, um, obviously there's a, a large element of, I guess, luck and serendipity in it as well, but how, how much did, what was it down to your, your planning and organization that you were able to kind of start and close that round really before, before things really started spiking uh, across the world? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I'm Nostradamus over here. Um, we, we did not have any clue as to what the impact of COVID would be when this process kicked off in late February. Um, by the time we got to early March, we were thinking about it a lot. It was sort of like, hey, is this going to affect our, um, you know, our raise? And we talked to the folks who were in sort of leading contention to run that round and said, hey, are, is this going to affect your decision to invest in our business? Because if so, maybe we should just throw on the brakes and we could go with our originally scheduled plan of raising later on in 2020. And all of them said, no, because we know if we're not giving you money now, someone else is. And we think you're going to be able to weather this shock um, that's happening in the global economy fairly well because of your position as a horizontal business. Okay. And, and so, so now we're obviously coming towards the end of 2020 already, which I, I can't believe uh, you guys have, you know, five extra customer base and you're, you're, uh, you're growing well. What is, um, what is the planning for your, your A raise looking like? What is, you know, what is the, how is the experience that you had on pre-seed and seed feeding into your preparation for that? Yeah. So it's, it all goes back to um, again, what are the key things that we need to do in the business? And so um as anyone who's been in this position before knows, um, you will get lots of interest from investors and we will happily have conversations with them, but it's not going to be regular because we need to focus on proving out some of the, the key points that we need to over the next you know few months here. Um, the other side of it too is we want to make sure that we can make the most effective use of all the capital that comes into the business. When we raised the 2.1 million, we knew that we could effectively deploy that capital. When we raised the 7.6 million, we knew that we could effectively deploy that capital over the following period. We need to gain a degree of conviction about how and where best to deploy capital that we bring in from an investor the next time we raise too. And so those are the things that we're going through as a business right now is, hey, we have a few other things that we need to prove to ourselves before we go and try to prove those things to the investor community. And usually what that means is like, if you can prove it to yourself, um, it's not going to be too difficult to go to an investor and say, Hey, here's the evidence that I used to convince myself that it's time for me to sell part of this business. Um, that otherwise I could probably, you know, sit on and turn around into a profitable business if I really wanted to. And those are the types of things that get investors really excited is the fact that, Hey, you're focusing on, proving the, 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 your ability to move to market as a business, you're proving the fit of your product, you're able to you know, close customers at a faster rate or larger customers over time and operate your business more and more efficiently, um, doing all those things turn into a fundraising round, right? So it's not the other way around where you take a fundraising round and then you say like, oh, hey, you know, I could do this and I could do this with the capital. You're gonna say, I'm gonna do more of this and more of this and more of this with that capital. Yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a better outlook. Uh, and it certainly sounds like, you know, you've had a, a pretty fast tracked first couple of years at Flatfile and a, a very interesting uh, time ahead. So I think a lot of the people who watch this will be, will be tracking Flatfile 
And uh, we're also going to write, put together a blog post as well, summarizing some of this stuff here, because I'm sure there'll be snippets of this that people will want to kind of reflect on and kind of dive deeper into. So um, looking forward to, to pulling that together with you as well, Eric. So just to kind of summarize things, um, this may be a difficult question to ask, but is there a, is there a, are there sort of three words that you can leave us with that will sort of imprint on people who are watching this back uh, how to kind of best design a fundraise for, for to optimize for speed? Uh, sure, but it's going to be a sentence. Um, That's it's, fine. <laughs> it's, um, operate your business. It, that's it. I mean, like if you know your business really well and you understand what makes it move and you understand the places where you're struggling to make it move, um, that's really most of what you need. Um, because when you get these questions from investors and especially as you move further and further along in different investment rounds, they're going to want to know things that, you know, you aren't necessarily thinking about if you're overly focused on the fund rates. If you are, knee deep in your business saying, hey, I need to figure out exactly what's going wrong here. I need to figure out how to improve things and iterate over time. Um, all that information will come incredibly naturally to you, but also that effort and time you put into the business is really gonna help when you have those investor conversations. And I'll tell you, I mean, it, everyone knows this, right? It's kind of an unwritten rule, but if you say, sorry, investor, I can't talk right now. I'm too busy selling customers <laughs> on my solution. Um, that's not going to hurt you in an investment conversation. That just means that, hey, okay, we need to have this at another time, but they're going to be excited about the fact that you are so dedicated to your business that you want to fund it with customer dollars first rather than investor dollars. I mean, customer dollars are a lot cheaper than investor dollars anyways. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to either take a call with a, you know, Fortune 500 type business who's really interested in potentially signing our biggest contract ever or a call with an investor just to catch up with them about the state of the business. I'm going to take that customer call 100% of the time and ask the investor to work around that customer conversation. Love that. Well, that's a, a, call, to, a call to all prospective customers out there to, to message Eric if they're interested in working with Flatfile. Yeah, and also other founders too. I mean, so I, both myself and David uh, are totally open with this kind of stuff. If you want to reach out, feel free to email me or David, add us on LinkedIn. More than happy to talk with you about fundraising. If you're interested in Flatfile as a solution for your business, more than happy to talk through that with you. We're still at the stage now where... Uh, we're capable of giving founder attention to almost every business who signs up and uses Blatfile, uh, which is really exciting for us. I just love being able to work with our customers still. Um, and I don't think there's going to be a day in the history of Blatfile where I'm not having some type of conversa active conversation with a customer of ours. Yeah, I mean, they're the, they're the best conversations, right? And, you know, in a way, you know, you came to our conference, you're on our program. I, you know, these kind of conversations, I learn a lot from them and I have a lot of fun as well. So they're definitely the best kind of conversations to have. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you today, to, today, Eric. So thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Alex. And you stay well. Thanks, man. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.